Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. Yes, it is the Guy Benson Show, and my name is Rich Zioli from Talk Radio 1210 WPHC in Philadelphia. It is great to be back with you on a busy news day today. And a lot of great guests coming up here on the Guy Benson Show. So thank you for being part of the show. Give you a little preview of where we're going this afternoon. Uh, Obviously, today we found out the news of the passing of Colin Powell. So we will address that as well this afternoon. Uh, 3.35, Griff Jenkins will be here. He was just down the border, just down there. About the same time that Biden reinstated Trump's remain in Mexico policy. That's the one that says, please stay in Mexico because we can't handle you in the United States of America. And the Biden administration cannot handle anybody in the United States of America. They can't. They have no ability now to manage this. So they've reinstated that harsh, cruel policy that you heard so much about for years. And now it's like crickets. I don't think it's harsh and cruel, but that's what we heard for years. Uh, 405 today, we are going to talk to former White House press secretary and Fox News contributor, Ari Fleischer, he is going to talk a little bit about Colin Powell and what that was like working with him back in the days of President George W. Bush's administration. Certainly a lot to discuss uh, from Colin Powell's contributions to not only the Bush administration, but our country. Uh, 435, Jim DeMint will be here. He's got a new book out. Of course, former congressman and senator from South Carolina and chairman of the Conservative Partnership Institute. I'm excited to find out about his new book. It's called Satan's Dare, which is a very cool title of a book, if I do say so myself. And the five o'clock hour, we're going to talk a little COVID with Dr. Nicole Sapphire. And particularly now that Anthony Fauci, Santo Fauci, has come out and said, sure, you can go trick or treating again. Yes, we can have Christmas again. I'm sure you were all waiting with bated breath to wait for Dr. Fauci to tell you you can enjoy these holidays again, right? Oh, I'm sure you've just been waiting. Well, now that he's given the green light, I guess life's back to normal again. So we'll talk to uh, Dr. Sapphire about that a little bit later in the show. And I would be remiss if I did not mention that, yes, Superman and the fact that he no longer stands for the American way. Truth, justice, all that stuff. I actually saw this coming a long time ago with a 2005 remake. Not really a remake. It was an offshoot. It was a terrible movie called Superman Returns, but I'll talk about that a little bit later in the show. But I want to begin here on The Guy Benson Show, my hometown of Philadelphia, where an awful, awful situation happened last week. And it's making national news today because it really says so much about the human condition. And I'm talking, of course, of the terrible story of a woman who was raped on a SEPTA train while people watched and nobody did anything to stop it. Nobody did anything to to interfere. Nobody even called 911. Nobody tried to stop it. It was terrible. And there's so many levels to this, too. There's so many different levels to what happened here. So let me just give you the details. So she was literally on a train near Philadelphia Wednesday night, and she was being raped at around 10 p.m. 
and riders watched it happen. They failed to intervene, and they didn't call 911. The train was traveling westbound on the Market Frankfurt line. If you're familiar with, with Philadelphia, it was headed toward the 69th Street Transportation Center. I think it's important to note, too, that this happened at 10 o'clock at night on a Wednesday night because a lot of people are afraid to go into Philadelphia these days. Crime in Philadelphia is soaring, like a lot of blue cities across this country. New York City, I mean, I know Guy talks about it a lot. The the crime in New York City is is off the charts. And, and the fact that they're just doing it in broad daylight now, right in the middle of Times Square. Pennsylvania, I mean, in, in Pennsylvania, you've got Philadelphia like this, but you've all, I mean, Chicago is a city that is being overtaken with crime. And I know people who don't want to come to the city anymore. They are working remote and have been really since COVID. And they're getting pressure to come back from their employers, but they're going to resist as long as possible. And one of the reasons why is public safety. There's been over 430 homicides in the city so far this year. And when you walk in Philadelphia, you're stepping over homeless people sleeping on the streets. I'm not even exaggerating like this. So for many people, going in there at night is just a non-starter for them. But some people have to be on the public transportation at night. They don't have a choice. So what happened here is a train's traveling westbound. It's about 10 o'clock at night. Uh, the woman pushed back and tried to stop the, the accused assailant from touching her. But then he proceeded to rip her clothes off, he said. The assault lasted about eight minutes and no passengers in the train car intervened. Now, superintendent of the Upper Darby Township Police Department, Timothy Bernhardt, said, I'm appalled by those who did nothing to help this woman, trying to understand why nobody would have done something to reach out and help her. Now, the guy who was charged with the rape, he's 35 years old, Fiston Goy, just randomly sat down next to this woman. This is what I mean about, about crime in America right now and, and in these blue cities where you've got prosecutors who are very woke and very weak on crime. Now, he's been charged with rape, sexual assault, aggravated indecent assault without consent, among other crimes. He was homeless, apparently, and was not armed during the attack. He was being held at the Delaware County Jail in lieu of $180,000 bail, did not have a lawyer as of Sunday afternoon. This is from the New York Times. Now, we don't know how many passengers were in the train car, and investigators are working to determine the exact number. There were several people who recorded the attack on their phones, Although that has not been confirmed, but that's to be what they've said has happened as much. It's been reported in the news that way. Eventually, a transportation authority employee got on the train. SEPTA being the Southeastern Pennsylvania Transit Authority. Some, a, tra- a transportation authority person got on the train and then called 911. A police officer ran into the train, caught this man in the act, and took him into custody. The surveillance footage shows that uh, although it doesn't contain audio... Based on the footage, it was clear that passengers had an opportunity to intervene, to do something to stop this, and they didn't. Now, I don't know why. And this is something I've been trying to figure out in my own morning show in Philadelphia on on Talk Radio 1210 WPHD. I don't know why they didn't try to intervene. So I took some thoughts today. I had people call up and also tweet me on Twitter at, at Rich Zioli, and they were giving lots of different theories. But one of the theories they keep coming back to is, Rich... If I intervene, I don't know if I'll wind up being charged with something, given the state of affairs right now in the city. Because you've got a prosecutor, his name is Larry Krasner, but he's one of George George Soros' guys. Soros gave him a ton of money, and there's a lot of these very woke prosecutors across the country. 
And they literally believe that criminals are victims. So much so that in the primary election for district attorney, former Governor Ed Rendell came out and spoke and supported his opponent. You know why he did that? Because even he knew that having a Democrat like Larry Krasner in there, who's so woke and so completely off the rails nuts, that somebody like that would turn around and then be in charge of essentially now law enforcement in the city of Philadelphia. So Ed Rendell, even though he's a Democrat, said this, this, is, this, this can't continue. But Larry Krasner won the primary, and he'll win re-election this coming November. But he's a guy who believes that criminals are victims of society, victims of capitalism's largesse. So what some people had said is, look, Rich, if I had intervened, what if I had wound up clocking this guy and, and, and knocking him out? What, what if I killed him in the course of this? Would I be the one facing charges? That was a common refrain I heard today. Other people said, honestly, the way that there's been so many uh, shootings this year in Philadelphia, how would somebody know the guy didn't have a gun? If they tried to intervene, would they think that they would end up to be a victim themselves? Now, look, I'm not making excuses for anybody. Please let me be clear on that point. I'm not trying to make excuses. I'm just sharing with you what some some of the thoughts were today of why people looked around and said, how is it that nobody, nobody did anything to intervene? And really, when you think about America right now, in the state of our cities and the rising crime rates across the country, and you think about the fact that right now we're also pushing for police officers to get mandatory vaccines, and in many cities like Chicago, they're saying, no, I'm out. And Chicago is another city that is having soaring rates of crime, soaring violence, soaring gun crimes committed by people with guns. Guns don't shoot anybody themselves, but there are bad people at the end of them and they're killing people with them. And they might lose a lot of cops in that city, too, at a time when people don't want to join law enforcement. Can you blame them? You join law enforcement today. You're a bad person immediately. You're always going to be presumed to be a bad person until proven otherwise. You're not going to have the support of the politicians anymore. The city's not going to stand by you. And all it takes is one mistake, and suddenly now you're national news. Cops that I talk to in Philadelphia, for example, and they're great. It's a great department, but their morale is low right now. So you think about this crime happening in Philadelphia on a train, and you think about what's going through the minds of people. I think it's easy to come to the conclusion that they didn't help out because they're just possibly now uh, of the mindset that they don't give a damn. But I think it's probably more complex than that. It's probably more complex because of of fear, a a fear. They were probably afraid the minute they got on that train. Everybody who's on that train at 10 o'clock at night in Philadelphia is afraid of exactly that situation happening. And that situation could happen to anybody. They could. And if it wasn't somebody raping a woman, it could be somebody shooting somebody or, or stabbing somebody. That's how bad it's getting, how bad it's gotten, how bad it is in Philadelphia. So maybe it's possible that people sat on the train and looked around and just thought to themselves, I can't, I can't do anything here. There's nothing I can do about this. And, and it could escalate. It, it could get worse. I could, be the, I could be the victim of this if I do something. They're hoping that people who are on the train that night will come forward and talk about this. And obviously, it'd be really interesting to hear what they have to say. And what I'm also interested in, too, is, is the idea of this, this theme, which I heard a lot of this morning, which is that if I did something... I would be getting in trouble for it. That if that if I went after this guy and let's say I intervened and, and wound up punching him and he, and he hit his head against the train and he, and he died, would, would I would I get in trouble? Would I be the one who's now facing facing the, the long arm of justice now at this point? Because would, would, a, would a prosecutor like that say, hey, this guy was homeless and mentally ill and 
killing him was not a punishment he deserved. So we're going to charge you now. I heard a lot of that from people today. And so I kept thinking to myself as I was listening to that, maybe there's something to that. Maybe there is a sense of not only fear of retaliation, but also a fear of judicial retaliation. As if, as if they'll do the wrong thing in trying to do the right thing, but the wrong thing in the eyes of a prosecutor like a Larry Krasner or a mayor like a Jim Kenney or any of these other liberals who run these cities in America right now, and then they'll wind up having to pay. I don't know. We won't know until the, till the witnesses come forward. And it's also easy to think, well, they just recorded on their phones and did nothing else. And maybe you can quickly think to yourself, well, they just wanted to be Internet famous. But maybe they thought they were helping by getting video evidence of the encounter. Maybe they thought that at least they could do something by at least showing what took place. Again, I don't know. And we won't know until we talk to them and find out what was going through their mind. But I do think it's emblematic of just how bad crime in America is getting in these cities. And the fact that this prosecutor views a guy like this as a victim. And that's why he's allowed to sleep on the streets now. Cops can't move them. Cops can't pick them up and move them out of the tourist areas. Cops are not allowed to do that anymore. They have a right to be on the streets. That's what these prosecutors believe. You see it in San Francisco with the tents on the streets and the uh, human poop problem that's going on out there. They've had to hire pooper scoopers, not for the animals or just for the animals, but also for the humans. It's hard to remember which is which at this point. But this is happening all over the place. And so when a crazy homeless guy gets on the train like that, is he, is he just a, a victim of society and not getting enough mental health care and mental treatment and counseling and, and he's just a drug addict and everything else? And these are all the questions that I'm sure are going through the minds of a lot of people. So here on The Guy Benson Show, we'll tackle that plus a lot of other questions. And uh, don't forget, 335, Griff Jenkins will be here. An update on the border. It's me, Rich Zioli, in for Guy. Don't go away. You're listening to Guy Benson. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Living the Bream is a podcast hosted by Fox News Channel's Shannon Bream, sharing inspirational stories, personal anecdotes, and an insider's perspective on actions and rulings from the high court. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. It is the Guy Benson Show. It's me, Rich Zioli, in for Guy today. Great to be with you this afternoon. Chicago Police Department says officers who don't adhere to the vaccination policy could be fired. Again, this is coming at a time when rising crime in America from Philadelphia to Chicago to New York City. I think the last thing we want to do right now is get rid of cops. But this is kind of a way to get rid of cops, right? I mean, is this now the new defund the police? The left wasn't successful by actually promoting defund the police. They talked about it a lot, but then they actually never got away with it. But they still believe it. They haven't changed their opinion on it. They, they, they still think cops are the problem and they'd love to replace them with social workers. So is this a way to possibly now get rid of cops? Now, look, there's some police officers who are going to want to get vaccinated, but there's some that won't. Maybe they've had COVID already. Maybe they just don't feel like they want to. Who knows? But to fire them 
or to get rid of them because they won't comply with this mandate from Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot seems insane, especially at a time right now when we need cops. We need more police on the streets as crime rates have been rising, really for the last 18 months. Since lockdowns, we've seen an increase in all this. And again, I keep thinking of the fact that whenever there's an excuse, if they have an excuse to trim the size of the police department without actually having to do it, they'll take it. So this becomes a convenient excuse for them. Lori Lightfoot, like other Democrat mayors in this country, is answering to the extreme left base of the Democrat Party. They're not answering to the Ed Rendells of the world who are not even around anymore. They're answering to the extreme left who believes that criminals are, for the most part, victims, except the ones at the Capitol on January 6th. But the other kind of criminals, they're all victims of society, and so they need to be treated accordingly. For example, in Pennsylvania right now, you can no longer stop somebody for having a broken taillight or something like that. Those kind of minor crimes are now out the window. Those kind of minor infractions, I should say, gone out the window. And some of the cops who've talked about that have said, yeah, but that's sometimes how we, we actually get bad guys because they've, they, they, they have broken taillights, because they, they don't have their cars inspected. They, they don't have the proper registration because they're bad guys and they don't take care of these things like responsible citizens do. So it's a way that we can actually catch them. But they yelled racism. They said it was disproportionate to black drivers. And I don't know how that is because it's not as if you can necessarily see who the driver is when you're pulling somebody over like that. But they said it. So therefore, it's racist. So then you just have to get rid of that. And you've given police officers now a disadvantage. I'm not saying that everybody who gets stopped for a broken taillight or a registration ticket or inspection sticker has to be given a ticket or the car impounded. I'm not even suggesting that. What I am saying, though, is that it was a tool for them to use to be able to figure out, is this someone who's just made a mistake? Just, you know, overdue with getting the car inspection, overdue with just, hey, who knew the light was out? It's happened to all of us at some point or another, hasn't it? Or is this something more? Somebody who who isn't taking care of the car because um, they're actually, you know, using the car for nefarious purposes. But every time you take away a tool like that from law enforcement, you just make their job harder. But that's really the goal right now from a lot of the left is to make their job as hard as possible. They're, they're fine with the fact that morale for law enforcement is low and that people don't want to become cops. They're OK with it. They're also OK that people are leaving. I mean, one officer posted on, on social media that he was done. He's not going to get the vaccine. He's not going to do it. He doesn't like the mandate, doesn't like to be told what to do. He said, I've had covid. I have the antibodies. I don't feel like I need it right now, but I'm not going to be subjected to these kind of mandates. So he quit. And I'm sure that there are people on the left celebrating that because they know that all their social workers will probably be vaccinated. The ones that they replace the cops with to be able to intervene in these situations with their their social sociology degrees instead of a gun. I'm sure that those those individuals are probably all vaccinated. So from their perspective, it's a win win. I know it's crazy and scary out there, but we are going to talk about the border next here on the Guy Benson show. Griff Jenkins will be here as the Biden administration reinstates the Trump era remain in Mexico policy. You want to find out exactly what's happened down there. Griff was just there. So he'll give us all the details here on the Guy Benson show with me, Rich Zioli. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. In for Guy, don't go away. It's the Hammer Time Podcast. Fox News Channel's Bill Hammer takes you one-on-one with engaging personalities covering the critical issues of the day. Find Hammer Time now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. GuyBensonShow.com. It is the Guy Benson Show. It's me, Rich Zioli, with you today. As you know, the uh, passing of Colin Powell today. We're going to talk to Ari Fleischer in the next hour about that. But I thought it'd be good to hear a little bit of audio regarding the kind of man that obviously Colin Powell was uh, and, uh, and what he'll mean to history. Um, okay, but we do have our guest. Excellent. So Griff Jenkins is with us, and I'm very, very happy to welcome him back to the Guy Benson Show, where I'm guest hosting today. It seems like every time I'm in, Griff is kind enough to join me. Fox News correspondent Griff Jenkins. Hey, Griff, good afternoon. Hey, Rich. How are you, my friend? Always great to be on with you. Oh, listen, I always, it's the highlight of filling in for Guy Benson. Absolutely. So thank you for that. Listen, I love talking to you because you follow, as so many other people do, uh, the border coverage. And um, I am sitting here on a Monday. Uh, I got a day off after many days on the road. And I, I am perplexed, Rich, by the fact that I can get myself into the densest jungle on the planet, broadcast, show the crisis Panama has, but yet I can't figure out how to post a picture on Instagram because I'm currently says I'm in a bad connection, which is simply not true. So I'm seeking the advice of my 20 year old daughter to sort this Instagram crisis out. Do you think it's because of the content of what you're trying to post Griff? Possibly. I ran the Army 10-miler is uh, virtual, and so I tried to do these things. So I went out. I said, it's Monday. It's a gorgeous fall day. I'm going to go run 10 miles. And so the the awful picture of me sweaty, out of shape, and beat up after 10 miles of forcing myself to do it might be offensive to all people. So possibly it's that. I think it's maybe just the technology that, I, that I'm not quite current on. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, you deserve a medal for all your reporting that you do overseas and i know and and of course south of the border and i know you were just down there so uh i guess the first question i have is are you surprised that the biden administration reinstated the remain in mexico asylum policy that was put in place by the trump administration well that's a great question and it's not quite clear how it will be implemented. So here's, here's the real thing to watch on that, Rich. And there is no doubt that the migrant protection protocols, which is what the Trump administration did, which basically made people who were claiming asylum as uh, the million and a half that have come across our border illegally and done so, will have to wait until their case is basically uh, going to be heard in the U.S. They have to wait in Mexico. And Mexico, at the time, worked out a uh, unilateral deal with us so that uh, it would it would happen and it was very very effective now of course the court order ordering the administration to reinstate it uh, the administration is making an effort however the devil is always in the details it is yet to be seen both how the administration 
reinstates it? Will it be full-throated? Will it be enforced, for example, because crossing our border illegally is certainly not enforced or even a pretense of attempting to do so? Will they put it uh, in effect? And will Mexico uh, give us the same level of cooperation? The Trump administration was very willing to give the necessary um, uh, things, both funding and, and, and you know, cooperation and, and sort of facilitating it, will the, will the Biden administration give Mexico what they need to do if they will, in good faith, reinstate it? And if so, that will be significant. Why? Because it sends a message. Our border crisis that has ebbed and flowed over the last, oh gosh, 40 years, uh, and hit unprecedented levels this year, really has been predicated on the pull factors and push factors. We know the push factors, poverty, uh, violence, these sorts of things, particularly of gangs in the Northern Triangle. But the pull factors really drive how heavy of a migration surge we get. And the pull factors now are the border's wide open and you have a 100% chance of staying if you cross, particularly if you have a kid with you. And so if indeed they start making everyone wait in Mexico, that's not what these migrants want to do. There's nothing for them to do in Juarez. There's nothing for them to do in Tijuana. It's very difficult for them to wait six months a year so they simply don't do it and griff jenkins if they don't have to why would they i mean if they can come right into your point especially if they have a kid with them which a lot of the coyotes that's easy to pull off why would they remain in mexico there's no there's no reason for them to do so they'll come to the united states i guess the question then becomes the trump administration would actually enforce it the Biden administration to your point we don't know how it's going to be implemented and 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 i I imagine there's going to be tremendous outrage from biden's own party that this may not even ever happen is it possible that even though they've announced the policy of remain in mexico that we never actually see it should you bet listen i'm going to be watching like a hawk to see if they indeed comply with the court order to put it in place and then i'll go over i, I fully intend to go over into juarez into uh ciudad acuna into tijuana into matamoros all places i've been to this year i'm going to go right over there as soon as they say it's operating to see if indeed people are over there because uh the proof is in the pudding and you know we have seen uh look only to what this administration has done in terms of uh of, of, of taking away any enforcement whatsoever of ice uh, officers. I was just talking this weekend with Tom Homan, the Fox News contributor, former acting ICE director. He said, guys he's talking to now said they are basically arresting and deporting about one individual a month. One guy. And Tom's point to me was, what are they doing on their jobs? Because they have so defanged enforcement to the level that unless you literally are committing unbelievable crimes or demonstrating that you are a uh, direct threat uh, to national security, i.e. you're on a terrorist watch list somewhere, you're not getting sent out of the country. 
Griff, let me ask you this, too. And Griff Jenkins is with me here on The Guy Benson Show. It's me, Rich Zioli, filling in. And congratulations, by the way, to Griff, who ran an amazing virtual, uh, well, I mean, he ran the real race, but a lot of virtual races as well. And uh, you helped the Travis Manning Foundation as well, which is an organization very near and dear to my heart uh, back in Philadelphia. And I know um, my buddy Ryan Manning was, was thrilled with your participation, Griff Jenkins. So congratulations on that, by the way. Uh, Rich, thank you so much. I, you know, my, my heart goes out. I, I love the, the Manion family and the Travis Manion Foundation. For those that don't know, Travis was killed in Iraq, uh, and, and his best friend uh, was a Navy SEAL, killed uh, uh, a few years after him, and, and they're buried side-by-side side in Arlington National Cemetery. President Obama called them brothers forever, and they really had become the face of this generation's wars uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan, and having spent a lot of time during uh, the invasion of Iraq all the way up until 2016. Um, it's so important, I think, that we recognize and, and sort of help folks in the Travis Manion and what Ryan and Krista Foy and everybody over there at TMF are doing is really trying to build uh, an organization in Travis's name centered around service, driving us to serve, to be better uh, better Americans and really pay back uh, that debt we owe to, to those that have given everything. And of course, the the famous phrase, if not me, then who? Because that was one of the things that Travis said on his way over to uh, to fight in the war. And, and that's a very lasting point, you know, if not me, then who? And it's something they live by at the Travis Manning Foundation. It's very inspiring. Your time was great. You did, let's see, what is it, an hour 53.06 with an average pace of, uh, was 11 minutes per, per mile? It's pretty good. Oh, my gosh. Listen, for a 50-year-old aging guy that my wife will tell you I've gained a few pounds around the midsection, I my I think I look back 10 years ago, my time in the Army 10-mile was like under 130. But uh, I just knew I haven't run in, in a long time. I just put on my headphones, got some music cranking, and, uh, and it's a gorgeous summer day here, and said, look, let's do this. Let's get this done. And I was just glad to finish under two hours. <laughs> Uh, Griff, before I let you go, and I know you you got to go get a Gatorade, so before I let you go, let me just ask you this. As far as Mexico goes and the, the whole notion of Mexico facilitating access to the United States of America, I, I saw that you retweeted a statement released by the leaders of the next caravan and uh, a huma- humanitarian activist directed to the government of Mexico saying, look, we're not going to be stopped. It's against the law. Well, I'm so glad you asked me that. So this morning, I was in contact with uh, Irenejo Mujica, and he is the leader of the Pueblo San Fronteras group, which is an open borders group. They led the caravans that I was in in 2019 when I marched 7,000 miles with 20,000 migrants from San Pedro Sula, Honduras, all the way through Honduras, Guatemala, and through Mexico, and we ended up in Piedras Negras, which is just across from Eagle Pass, where obviously we saw what was happening uh, just a tad bit to the west in Del Rio with the migrants. And when I was down in Tapachula three weeks ago, Irenejo Mujica was there, and he was, did an interview with me, and he was telling me, I'm going to get uh, the, uh, the Caravana Madre, the mother of caravans, with these Haitians, and I'm going to march through Mexico and into the U.S., because not only is the U.S. Uh, uh, not doing more for uh, Haitians, he was upset, the fact that they were deported from Del Rio at the time. He's upset with Mexico's government which is not fast-tracking these temporary 
work permits, temporary asylum. For those that sort of, it's complicated, but Mexico, for going back to, you know, 2016, 2017, created kind of a temporary uh, uh, work permit of sorts, if you will, so that they could be in the country for up to a year as they're trying to participate in MPP and try and get asylum in the U.S. or apply for longer-term asylum in Mexico so that they could work, so they could get the permits and be allowed to work. And Mexico's enforcement, immigration enforcement, basically cracked down and has been cracking down on anyone that goes north of that southernmost city of Tapachula without the permit, which is why I was there, because there's 20,000 Haitians that have to stay there trying to get these work permits. But Mexico says that they're overwhelmed, they're backlogged like never before because of this unprecedented surge of Haitians. I was just obviously down in Panama with another God knows how many tens of thousands are on their way, and they're going right to Tapachula before they go to the U.S. And Irenejo Mujica this morning confirmed for me that on the 23rd, October 23rd, that's just a Saturday away, that he is going to set out with this caravan and head north and do so in defiance of the Mexican government wanting all the migrants to stay there. Not sure how that's going to play out, or obviously how they'll be received on the U.S. Uh, border once they get up there, if they make it, because I don't think the administration, while clearly being uh, uh, for relaxed open border policies, doesn't want another Del Rio on their hands. I am hoping that possibly if it does take off and get moving to Mexico, I'll be able to report for you and get down and get into it. Oh, absolutely. Well, the reporting's great. And follow Griff on Twitter, at Griff Jenkins, two Fs. And uh, thanks again, my friend, for doing the Army 10-Miler for the Travis Madden Foundation. That's awesome. Great reporting, as always, Griff Jenkins. Great to talk to you here on The Guy Benson. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. And I appreciate it. Rich, thank you so much. I love being on with you. And I'm going to hit you up one of these days for a Spartan race or an Army 10-miler, and you can run with me and the Travis Manning Foundation. How about we just have a cheesesteak at the end of the race? (laughs) <laughs> that works too. Thanks, <laughs> All right, go get a Gatorade. You've earned it, Griff Jenkins. Thanks, buddy. And uh, we'll be right back here on the Guy Benson Show. A lot more to come. Don't go away. The Guy Benson Show. Get this and all your favorite Fox News podcasts ad-free on Apple Podcasts with Fox News Podcasts Plus. Just go to foxnewspodcasts.com for all the details. So the Supreme Court of the United States got some hot cases coming its way. Everything from a challenge with Roe v. Wade to Second Amendment. There's a great case that's going to be making its way up to the high court revolving your right to carry, which I know that in New Jersey, where I live, uh, it's impossible, basically impossible to have a gun on you outside of the home, concealed or otherwise. But uh, it's also very hard to get a gun for inside the home. So the Supreme Court is where the action is, no doubt. 
And there was a lot of talk for a while about this idea of expanding the size of the Supreme Court. You probably heard this. In fact, the left was running around talking about it all the time. They kept saying, well, we need more justices on there. In fact, New Jersey Senator Cory Booker was out there, one of those people saying over and over again, we need a court that matches the times in which we live. And he advocated, I think, 14 justices at one point, 14 justices. Biden was, as usual, wishy-washy on it because he's not making the decisions anyway. So somebody else was telling him what to say. And at the time, he was kind of like, well, I don't think so, but I don't know. And he's not really in charge. So they decided to do a report, a commission, a commission to study the size of the Supreme Court. And the Presidential Commission on the Supreme Court released its first report Thursday last week, suggesting that an expansion of the court would be unlikely to achieve balance and instead recommending the rotation of justices. Yeah, that's right. You're not hearing about this. So ask yourself this. If the commission had come back and said, yes, we definitely should expand the size of the court, add five more justices on there, you think you would hear about this? I think you would. I have a feeling it would be big news. Quote from the commission's report, there are also reasons to doubt that court expansion necessarily would produce benefit in terms of diversity of efficiency. There is no guarantee that a larger court would be drawn from a more diverse group of individuals, and a larger court may be less efficient than the current complement of justices. Now, this report obviously comes at a time when the left is terrified about Roe v. Wade being overturned, terrified of this. And it's, it's what they use to raise money all the time. See, that's the other thing, too, about this, is that they use that to raise lots and lots of money. Now, We heard about the idea of expanding the court over and over and over again. Then they come back and say, we're not going to do it. And then suddenly now it's crickets. I mean, crickets. They didn't even talk about it on the Sunday shows as far as I know. I didn't see him talk about it anyway. So now any Supreme Court reform would likely require unified government, they said in the commission's report. And they said, nevertheless, we believe it is important to recognize the risk of what an expanded court could do. They, they look to possibly now expand to maybe 23 or 29 justices, 39 or possibly 63 justices. They look at all kinds of different things. But one idea that they floated is a rotation system, which would see judges rotate between service on the Supreme Court and in lower federal courts. Now, that's never going to happen. There, I, that, that will never happen. You're not going to get a Supreme Court justice. And then have that person go down to a lower court. It's not it's not going to happen. Also, there's all kinds of questions about that. What if they if they rule on a case in the lower court that's challenged and out goes the Supreme Court? Obviously, then they have to recuse themselves, most likely. But that's really up to the justices. So how that works, no one really knows. And then, of course, the other constitutional obstacle of this is that the judiciary is supposed to be impartial. The judicial power of the United States shall be vested in one Supreme Court and then inferior courts as the Congress from time to time ordains and establishes. So basically now, if you were to say that the Supreme Court, a justice there, would have to go to one of the inferior courts, you're admitting that you've now given the guy a lesser job, is basically what I'm saying. And so that's never going to happen. And the judges, the justices themselves will never go for it. So that's pretty much dead in arrival. So it looks like the nine justices we have are here to stay. Now the only question is, Who's going to resign next? And when is that going to happen? And is it going to happen so that Biden could make an appointment? Because, you know, you've heard a lot about this, this whole idea that they know that Biden's probably not going to get a second term. So they need him to do something now. And we'll see if that actually 
comes to fruition. Uh, here on the Guy Benson Show, a lot to discuss. We have, of course, the passing of former Secretary of State Colin Powell. We will talk about it live with former White House Press Secretary and current Fox News contributor Ari Fleischer straight ahead. Nation presents podcasts, Women of the Bible Speak. I'm Shannon Bream, host of Fox News at Night and author of the new book, Women of the Bible Speak, the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Kai Benson Show. It is the Guy Benson Show. It's me, Rich Zioli from WPHT in Philadelphia, in with you this afternoon. Great to be here with you on a very, very important day, a newsworthy day, a very historic day as well, uh, the passing of Colin Powell. And uh, really grateful that former White House press secretary and Fox News contributor Ari Fleischer, president of Ari Fleischer Communications and on Twitter at Ari Fleischer, has agreed to come on the show today to uh, remember Colin Powell. So, hey, Ari, thank you for uh, making time this afternoon. Appreciate it. You're most welcome. Now, I'm sure you're, you've talked a lot about this today, but you were obviously there at the epicenter of when Colin Powell was advising President George W. Bush. And uh, I, I know that today, for what President George W. Bush said, for a lot of you, it's, it's, a, it's a very tough day. So I, I send my condolences. It is a very tough day for those of us who knew him because he was just one of those rare, good, good guys. And, you know, that's how I'll always remember Colin Powell for his laugh, for his his warmth, the kindness with which he treated people. You know, I understand, of course, people can remember him for policy or for the WMD speech at the United Nations. I remember the man. And that was the type of just wonderful, wonderful person that he was. What was character like for Colin Powell? I, I think for Colin Powell, a soldier, a general, someone who took that code of honor from the military and took it seriously, character was everything. I think that's one of the reasons that, politically speaking, he was a free agent. He wasn't locked into a conservative or a liberal ideology. He he supported the man or the woman. And it would frustrate people. I think Republicans were frustrated when Powell endorsed Barack Obama in 2008. But I think what Colin Powell would say to you is he judges individuals before he does parties and he puts his country before his party. Uh, that's That was what Colin Powell would say. How do you think history will remember him, Ari Fleischer? I think history is going to remember him tremendously fondly as a result of his, his upbringing, his rags to riches fame, that is really a testament to his, his Jamaican upbringing, his entering the army, and then moving all the way up to general and being such a popular American. He will always have, and he said it himself, a paragraph in his obituary about his WMD remarks to the United Nations. Uh, but I want to remind everybody, when Colin Powell gave those remarks, he faithfully and honorably reported exactly what the CIA had concluded. And when people say the administration lied or Powell lied or Bush lied, it drives me crazy because it is wrong as wrong can be. Now, the information turned out to be wrong that Powell relied on, but we all believed it was true, and the CIA believed it was true at the time that it was said. 
And that is always going to be a part of Cowell's legacy, though. Yeah, it will be part of the legacy, no doubt. It, it obviously will be. And there's a lot of questions regarding the intelligence community's assessment, whether or not the weapons were moved. I mean, there, there's lots of questions surrounding all of that. But the key point that you make, Ari, is that he did not go before the United Nations and deliberately lie to have us invade Iraq and to get their blessing. <laughs> I mean, he was the reluctant warrior of everybody in the administration. Colin Powell was the last one on board. Um, I remember him coming out of the Situation Room one day and telling me, uh, with some frustration about Secretary Rumsfeld and Vice President Cheney, that, and, and he, you know, this is how Colin Powell would speak. He said, you know, we have a no-fly zone over Iraq, and when an Iraqi wants to get a swimming pool put in their backyard, they'll throw out a bunch of aluminum in their backyard, making us think it's a radar of some sort back there. So we drop a bomb on it, and we dig the hole so they can get a swimming pool. <laughs> You know, that was kind of Colin Powell's approach to things, and he was the last reluctant warrior. All right, Fleischer, I know President Bush put out a statement today. There there are Republicans, and you mentioned this too, uh, who bring up the fact that he was kind of divisive in his politics towards the end in terms of not supporting President Trump. And, you know, you reminded us uh, nominating Barack Obama, I mean, supporting Barack Obama. And clearly on a day like today, you, you want to never talk ill of the dead and you don't want to try to make this political. But do, do you think that that was a mistake for him to get politically involved, especially after he retired? Or, or do you think it was a situation where, look, that's just the guy he is and it's just the way he's going to be? He was true to who he was. I mean, he, he did what he thought was right for the country. I disagreed with him. And I'm more conservative than he is, but it just tells you the type of person he is. You know, in Washington, it's actually a little easier to kind of toe the party line, support your party right or wrong. Powell struck out an independent course, and it's a little lonely sometimes being independent. Uh, but he, he did what he thought was right. Ari Fleischer, president of Ari Fleischer Communications and on Twitter at Ari Fleischer. Hey, thanks so much for joining me this afternoon. And again, my condolences to you on the passing of your friend, Colin Powell. Uh, we do have some audio I want to share with you. You know, Ari talked about that speech before the uh, United Nations and have a little bit of a snippet for you. And yeah, this is the history, no doubt about that. So let's take a listen to cut number three. We have first-hand descriptions of biological weapons factories on wheels and on rails. The trucks and train cars are easily moved and are designed to evade detection by inspectors. In a matter of months, they can produce a quantity of biological poison equal to the entire amount that Iraq claimed to have produced in the years prior to the Gulf War. Although Iraq's mobile production program began in the mid-1990s, UN inspectors at the time only had vague hints of such programs. Confirmation came later, in the year 2000. The source was an eyewitness, an Iraqi chemical engineer who supervised one of these facilities. And this is, as Ari said, he was giving them what the CIA had concluded. Uh, many people think, you know, obviously a huge intelligence failure. Well, some people think, nope, it was true, and then they just moved all the weapons. But either way, the point that Ari Flasher was making was that Colin Powell did not deliberately try to deceive the United Nations in order to get us into war. John Meacham is a presidential historian. And he's always a guy that writes books about presidents and talks about presidents and also the people who surround presidents. He was on MSNBC discussing Powell's legacy and, and, and really particularly about the Gulf War. So cut number one. It was Dick Cheney 
uh, and who suggested and helped push for uh, George H.W. Bush to bring Powell back uh, to uh, be the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. Uh, he, he, that was the beginning of a kind of George Marshall-like career because he was, in many ways, the architect of uh, of the first Gulf War victory, which is one of the great examples of how we should uh, project force. Uh, and he did that. And then, of course, as Secretary of State. So there's this... And just to put it in a plain vernacular, he's a black guy who's doing it. And he used to say that. Uh, privately, you know, it's like, you know, I'm a black guy in America doing this. And that's a great thing about America. But he would also say it shouldn't be that notable. It shouldn't be that unusual. Colin Powell also, uh, he died of COVID complications, according to his family. They mentioned that he was vaccinated. There's a lot of questions around that. He had underlying conditions. He had uh, cancer. There were other factors. Dr. Nicole Sapphire is going to be here at 5 o'clock. I'll ask her about some of that and why being vaccinated at 84 years old with those underlying conditions was was not enough to uh, save his life. And, of course, it's also important to remember that um, people at 84 years old, even without COVID, sometimes have battles that that they just can't overcome, especially when they've had to deal with things like cancer. So important point to remember. But his uh, history, though, and what what will mean about history and his rise through the ranks and literally starting at the early the bottom rung and then going all the way up to general and then advising presidents, multiple presidents from Reagan uh, to George H.W. Bush to President George W. Bush and on and on. So John Meacham commented on that cut two. General Powell, I think, represents the best of what the country can be. Uh, his trajectory, uh, based on merit, based on skill, uh, something he wrote about, something he talked about. He titled his memoir, uh, American Journey. And in many ways, his capacities uh, to rise, to shape history, represent uh, the best of, of what we should be. And he saw uh, the, that those possibilities, the, the country that, that, that had made his life possible, fading uh, in these, these recent years. So obviously a lot of uh, important points being brought up today by uh, people who have thoughts on Colin Powell and what his impact will be, what the history will be, uh, and how he'll be remembered, no doubt about that. And many people also... Uh, very fondly remembering him from the first Gulf War and his incredible handling of that back then, you know, watching the press conferences and, and seeing his leadership back then. And a lot of that today, people talking about and, and really and rightfully so, I mean, bringing up those those points. Now, yes, the history is obviously going to talk about the WMDs. And, and Ari Fleischer said that as well. He said, you know, there's nothing that's going to change that fact. But Ari is convinced that he purposely did not purposely try to say anything like that. I will just quickly read you the statement from President George W. Bush on the passing of Colin Powell. He said, Laura and I are deeply saddened by the death of Colin Powell. He was a great public servant, starting with his time as a soldier during Vietnam. Many presidents relied on General Powell's counsel and experience. He was National Security Advisor under President Reagan, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff under my father and President Clinton, and Secretary of State during my administration. He was such a favorite of presidents that he earned the Presidential Medal of Freedom twice. He was highly respected at home and abroad, and most important, 
Colin was a uh, Colin was a family man and a friend. Laura and I send Alma and their children our sincere condolences as they remember the life of a great man. A lot more to discuss here on the Guy Benson Show. Don't go away. Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of The Story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. It is The Guy Benson Show. Great to have you with us today. It's me, Rich Zioli, filling in for Guy. I appreciate you listening this afternoon. So we're still talking about the supply chain issues in a big way. And uh, that's not going to go away anytime soon because those ships are still sitting out of the port of Los Angeles amid other places, too. And I don't know when it's going to get better, if it's going to get better. But one thing I do know, though, is that nothing Biden said last week is going to make a damn bit of difference. I mean, really, what did he say? He said that the ports are going to stay open 24-7. Well, that's great unless you don't have people who can work 24-7, which is still the problem. The problem still is the shortage of employees. That's the problem. And why? It's because Democrats got us to this situation. For for months and months and months, they gave out the, up to $600 a week extra money in unemployment benefits. And they keep saying, well, that stopped in September. Yeah, but it doesn't matter if it stopped. The point is that that money is sitting in people's bank accounts. You know, the Wall Street Journal pointed out the other day, $1.7 trillion of money just sitting in people's bank accounts. Now, why is that? It's because they didn't spend it. I mean, everybody thinks that, oh, they got this money and they want to lavish trips and everything like that. It was COVID. They, They didn't really go anywhere. So there's no need for them to rush back into the workforce and they can still get unemployment Yeah, they're not getting the VIG on top from the federal government, at least not now, but they're still eligible to get unemployment insurance if they quit their job because of COVID. I mean, normally you have to be fired, but these days, if you just say, I don't feel safe, that's enough. And what they don't do these days is ask you to prove that you're trying to find another job. That used to be a thing. You used to have to show them you were trying to get a job. Not anymore. Now you just sit back and and you could be uh, out of the workforce as long as you want. So that's the real issue here. And everything else coming out of the Biden administration is a bunch of BS right now. I don't know what the major uh, progress that's being made is being done, but the Transportation Secretary, Pete Buttigieg, who really is in charge of all this, he admitted, look, supply chain challenges, they're going to continue well into 2022. He was talking to Jake Tapper about this. Uh, Cut six. Well, certainly a lot of the challenges that we've been experiencing this year will continue into next year, but there are both short-term and long-term steps that we can take to do something about it. Now the issue is, even though our ports are handling more than they ever have, record amounts of goods coming through, our supply chains can't keep up. And of course our supply chains, that's a complicated system that is mostly in private hands, and rightly so. Our role is to be an honest broker, bring together all of the different players there, secure commitments, and get solutions that are gonna make it easier. Yeah. Like what? What are the solutions? What what exactly are those solutions? And in terms of the unprecedented demand, yes, of crap made in China, let's face it. We're dealing with stuff that people buy mostly on Amazon and other places like that. And then it comes from China and now it's sitting on gigantic container ships because we don't do enough manufacturing in the United States of America. Now, Buttigieg admits as much, but I don't really know if he has a plan to do anything about it. He's on Meet the Press, cut seven. 
if we didn't need to go overseas for so many of our products, uh, we would have a lot more resilience in our supply chain when there is, you know, uh, a, anything from a typhoon to a COVID outbreak shutting down a factory overseas. And so it's one more reason why the president is rightly calling on America and working for America uh, to build up more of that domestic manufacturing and other supply capacity. Yeah, right as you raise the corporate tax rate. Now, think about this now. Biden wants to raise the corporate tax rate from where it is about 22, 23% to 26%. It's a massive increase. But then he's going to call on all these companies to start manufacturing more in the United States of America. Does this make any sense to you? Does it make any sense? He's going to he's going to go after them and he's always yelling about these corporations don't pay their fair share and they and that billionaires and trillionaires. I mean, he sounds more and more like Bernie Sanders every day and Bernie's always yelling about it. So he's going to raise the corporate tax rate at the very same time. He's going to turn around and go, oh, and, and while you're at it, uh, build more stuff here. Yeah, except you make it so incredibly expensive to build here and so incredibly expensive to manufacture here that, yeah, it's it's cheaper to manufacture overseas. And this is a problem that was a thing until President Trump came in and then they lowered the corporate tax rate, which was very important to do. And now they want to jack it back up. Something else too to think about. You could have a many American manufacturing in the United States of America, but again, you need people to work in the factories. You need people to be on the assembly lines. Part of what the Democrats have succeeded in doing is getting millions and millions of people out of the workforce. And they're not going back anytime soon. That's the other thing, too. Everybody thinks that, oh, yeah, this is just, you know, they're just enjoying their time and maybe they'll go back into the labor force soon. They may not go back at all. They may never go back. And if that gigantic socialist bill passes, which really isn't $3.5 trillion. When you really look at it, it's closer to $5, $6 trillion like that. I mean, it's amazing we throw around these numbers. But that's going to also take care of people in, in, in new ways that they may not need to go and get a job. So all these factors, Democrats have created a perfect storm now for people to literally stay out of the workforce. At the same time, they turn around and go, oh, no, no it's getting better. It's getting better. How's it getting better? What, what is the progress that's being made here? Cut number four. But uh, after bringing together the players, agreeing that this was a good approach, seeing the pilot launched in Long Beach and now being able to announce, as the president did mm -hmm. last week, that L.A. is also going 24-7, uh, we've got major progress on that front. Yeah. Right. What, where? Where's the progress? And then the president said, look, he's probably not going to get us three and a half trillion dollars. Well, you know what? The Democrats want more. And that's also part of the problem is that they don't want to budge on any of that to give infrastructure a thing. Cut number eight. So when I hear people say it costs three point five trillion and be honest with you, we're probably not going to get three point five trillion this year. We're going to get something less than that. But I'm going to negotiate. I'm going to get it done with the grace of God and the good little neighbors and the quick not rising, as my grandpa would say. I don't know what that means. But all I do know is this. Uh, it's way more than three point five trillion. And the fact is that your own party, because it's all socialist now, doesn't want to budge on that number. That's the truth. Hey, coming up, we got a great guest here. Former Senator Jim DeMint will be my guest here on The Guy Benson Show with me. Rich Zioli in for Guy. Don't go away.
from the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, publisher of The Federalist, and I'm inviting you to join a new conversation with the smartest thinkers out there about the country and where we're going. Subscribe to the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. It is the Guy Benson Show. It's me, Rich Zioli, in for Guy this afternoon. Thank you for being part of the show. We appreciate it. Uh, Former Senator Jim DeMint, who's the chairman of the Conservative Partnership Institute, he has got a new book out right now with a really awesome title. So I want to welcome him to the program today. Hey, Senator, thanks for being on the show. Rich, thank you. And thank you for letting me talk about the book and a lot of things related to it. Like uh, we've been talking a lot about the death of truth in America. And uh, that's one of the things that Satan's Dare gets at. Well, I love the title, Satan's Dare. I, I think it's fantastic. And and this is a novel. So uh, is this your first crack at writing uh, a novel? Yeah, except I've been working on it for over 10 years, so I feel like I've written several of them. But the, the title comes from the first chapter of Job, where Satan dares God to remove um, Job's blessing and allow him to suffer. And it's really the story of every human being that ever lives, because we all go through suffering and tragedy and, and death during our lives. And uh, and so the the story kind of evolves as, as the characters are going through this. I think any reader will, will find themselves in the characters and, and in the situations, uh, but they start looking for answers and looking for truth. And why would God uh, allow this to happen? Why did he ha- let it happen to Job? Why, why does he let it happen to us? And, and what the book is really getting at is is just answers to questions that most people are afraid to ask. And it gets into debates between folks who are saying science uh, discredits the Bible. And, and in fact, science proves the Bible is true if you take the time to look at it. It proves God created the earth. And and so that, the book is a, a lot about – a lot of that is worked into it. But it's a love story with couples dealing with, with tragedy, and I think any Christian that reads it will have their faith confirmed and their uh, confidence in the Bible confirmed, and uh, any skeptic who reads it will have to ask a whole lot of honest questions uh, about what really is truth. Sounds like you had a lot of fun writing it. I know you said it took you 10 years, but uh, I, I'm, I'm guessing you really enjoyed the process. Yeah, I did, and it's. And you've probably gone through this writing things, but I, I got to know the characters so well. They were like part of my family and friends. And when I finished writing it, I felt like I had lost <laughs> my friends. So every now and then, I have to pick it up and just look at it again. But the, the folks who've read it uh, have have gotten a lot out of it. So it's just a great. Um, read. Um, I, I think it really is a good read, a great story. But under all this is is actually a connection to politics because people are talking so much today about being tired of being lied to. They don't know where to get the truth about COVID, about the border, about the spending bills. And there seems to have just been a death of truth in America. And we forget that truth comes, it begins with the knowledge of God. And this whole country was founded on Judeo-Christian ideas that have come out of the Bible, yet we've thrown the Bible out of schools and and pretty much banned it from public discourse. And if we wonder why there's no truth, um, the answer is uh, pretty obvious. 
Jim DeMint is my guest, former United States Senator and author of a brand new book out called Satan's Dare. Senator, I want to ask you while I have you, obviously today is the uh, very sad day for a lot of people, the passing of former Secretary of State Colin Powell. I know you knew him well, you worked with him. Uh, what are your thoughts? Well, obviously it's sad anytime we lose a, uh, anyone, but certainly a great leader. He has such a nice civil um approach to everything, a calm demeanor. Um, he was a, a wonderful public figure in, in a lot of ways with a, lo- a lot of wisdom. And But he served the country his whole life, and we need to thank him for that. Uh, and um, so grateful for his life. It's time to celebrate his life. He, he had 84 wonderful years, uh, so we should be very proud he was an American. Do you think that uh, history will will be kind to him? Do you think he'll be remembered for uh, his contributions, or are they going to focus, you know, too much say on the WMDs before the UN? It was a, a question that I, I had with Ari Fleischer earlier today. That certainly, you know, that's going to be part of the record. But he did so much else with his career. Well, he he did, and I don't think you can tag uh, that uh, report on weapons of mass destruction on him. I mean, it came out of our intelligence service, and intelligence services from all over the world uh, essentially had the same um, message there. And far as we know, it could have been true. They could have been moved. We really don't know, but you certainly can't take away a man's career because he was the messenger in that case. Senator, let me ask you, too, in terms of the Biden administration right now and, and what's going on, and, and you mentioned really there's a, there's an attack on, on Christianity in this country, and, and there certainly is. A lot of parents feel that way, too. They're feeling more and more as if public schools, for example, are teaching curriculum that just violates so much of their beliefs. They don't have the ability to send their kids to private school, parochial schools, but they're feeling very frustrated. I think you see that right now at school board meetings around the country. Yeah, and and it just brings up the issue I've been working on my whole time in in public life is the um, school choice. Uh, if we take the money we're spending on public school students and direct it through the parents individually to the children, uh, we could would begin to see um, a massive change in education for the good. Uh, but parents should be worried. Uh, the the COVID uh, helped people start to see more about what their children really were reading at home and they they saw some of this online and um, they're continuing to they're they're blatantly teaching that America's race said it was founded on on slavery things that discredit our country and make these students um, hate our country and we're seeing a lot of that now uh, so it, this is a time we have to stand up um, uh, we the people we, we should not be paying for schools that are teaching everything from various types of uh, pornography in effect teaching very young children about sexual preferences they don't need to know anything about and and actually pushing them in a direction that is damaging to them and uh we can't put up with it. I'm I'm proud of parents who are standing up and fighting back. But what we really need to do is we're not going to fix all these government public schools. Uh, they get better every time there's choice. Uh, we've seen that in states like Florida. Public schools got better as they added more private and independent choices. Uh, but that should be our mission in life as Americans is, is to get our education system where Parents can trust that they they have a place to send their kids where they get a worldview that their parents agree with.
Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think everything you said is music to my ears. I think it's the most critical issue right now uh, in our country. I think it's a civil rights issue of our time. And parents that I, I know, COVID really opened their eyes to the fact of, of what's happening and why choice is essential. No doubt about it. The teachers unions are going to continue to fight it. Uh, no doubt about that. And, you know, now you've got a situation where the attorney general of the United States has decided that parents who speak out at school board meetings are domestic terrorists. He wants to use the Patriot Act against them. I'm pretty sure that that's not one of the reasons why you and your colleagues supported the Patriot Act was to go after parents who speak out at school board meetings, Senator. No, they have, um, as they often do with government programs, there were a lot of assurances given when the Patriot Act was passed. Uh, data would, would only be co- uh, collected on if there was a, a foreign source that had a terrorist connection and it would not be saved. All of that is out the, the window, and now we, we're becoming uh, very much a surveillance state and with companies like Google and uh, Facebook providing data to our, um, you know, intelligence and law enforcement agencies. So they know where we are all the time uh, from through our cell phones. And uh, and I, I just think we need to step back from that. That's why at CPI here, we're working a lot on the big tech censorship and, and what can be done to create a, a, a fairer system. But it gets back to the idea of truth. I mean, we're being manipulated in a lot of ways. Um, if you look back at the history of what they, they told us about COVID. Uh, either a lot of people didn't know what they're talking about or they intentionally lied to us. And they're still doing that to maintain control. And what they should do in, in cases like COVID is make sure Americans have the best information they can and then let them make their own decisions. Um, and I think in most cases that would work. Senator, congratulations on the book, Satan's Dare, your first novel. But, of course, you've been a best-selling author before. So this is, as Glenn Beck said, it's different from any other Jim DeMint book, but it may very well be your most important. So congratulations, best of luck with it, and thanks for coming on the show today. We appreciate it. Satan's Dare is available everywhere and, of course, on Amazon.com as well. So thank you, Senator. Thanks, Rich. And here on The Guy Benson Show, we will come back and we'll chat more about the news of the day. Turns out President Biden was seen violating D.C.'s indoor mask mandate at a pricey restaurant. And actually, you know what? We can probably play for you the audio of Peter Ducey asking the question. And maybe what we'll do is we can come back with the answer. I don't know. Maybe that's a possibility. We could try that. But anyway, the Deuce asked the question today at the White House press briefing. The rules in D.C. are ridiculous, like they are in many other places around this country with regards to masking. And uh, and, and, and there's such stupid policies that the politicians can't even follow them as well. So the mayor of D.C. has violated her very own orders on, on masking in restaurants and, and that sort of thing. She was at a wedding or something and she took the mask off. And all around the country, we're seeing this with Democrats. So Biden walks through a kitchen. He and Jill are on a date night at a very, very pricey restaurant in Washington, D.C. And as they often do with presidents, if you've seen movies, and they take them in through the kitchen. It's always kind of cool in the movies, too, how they do that. You know, the motorcade's right outside, and they they walk them through the kitchen, and everybody turns around and looks. But in this case, President and the First Lady are walking through the kitchen on the way to their table, and no masks on. Now, I don't think you need to have a mask on unless you want to wear one in particular. I think these mask mandates are ridiculous, but... It is the the rule in Washington, D.C. that you have to have one on, especially if you're walking through a restaurant. Now, if you're seated at your table, that's a different story, but that's not what he was doing. And so when we get back, I'll play for you the audio of Peter Ducey confronting Jen Psaki on this and what Jen Psaki had to say here on The Guy Benson Show. Don't go away. 
You're listening to a new generation of talk. Generation of talk. Guy Benson. New from the Fox News Podcasts Network. My name is Kennedy and welcome to my podcast, which will, I humbly say, single-handedly save the world. You're welcome. It's Kennedy Saves the World. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. So mask hypocrisy. Masks for thee, but not for me, especially if you're a D, as in Democrat. It's everywhere. It's sweeping the nation right now. Even in my state of New Jersey, where the governor of New Jersey, Phil Murphy, who requires that two-year-olds put on face masks in daycare and schools, was caught again maskless at another big political event. Now, there's two races for governor this year on the ballot, Virginia and New Jersey. You've heard a lot about Virginia mainly because of the press coverage, given the fact that the D.C. media market. New Jersey, I haven't heard of as much, but Jack Cedarelli, who's a Republican, who's running for governor, is a really great guy. And Phil Murphy, who's a Democrat, uh, caught again not wearing a mask. Again, even though he's requiring them for our kids in schools. But he's allowed to go to big swanky political events and walk around and not have a mask on. He was called out on this hypocrisy. But, you know, he's the governor and you're not. And so what are you going to do? And... In one of the pictures, he's sitting there. At first, he said, look, I, I, I wore a mask. I walked to the podium. I took the mask off, and I spoke, and what's the big deal? Then a picture emerged of him sitting down with somebody, neither one of them wearing masks. So he had to address that hypocrisy and saying, well, my friend's vaccinated, so don't worry about it. Again, it's, it's, the, it's the hypocrisy of Democrats. You know, The rules are meant for you, not for them. And when they violate the rules, they've got a good excuse Well, they're very, very important people, you know, with lots of important friends. You, not so much. Now, Joe Biden is a giant hypocrite as well because he put in this mask order at the White House and you see the press corps, they have to sit in their seats and wear their masks. And I think that's done just to, you know, just a needle of them. And then in D.C., they've got one of the toughest mask mandates in the country as well. Why at this point? Why do we still have these mask mandates? I mean, really, what's the point of this now? We've got so many people vaccinated if they want to be. D.C.'s mask rules are absurd. It's absurd. This whole notion of as you're walking, you have to have a mask on. And, you know, in D.C., dining establishments that fail to enforce those rules can face a thousand dollar fine. So what I've heard from people who've gone to dinner there is that they are like, you know, you, you better have one on because the business knows it's on them. They'll get the fine, not you. So it's annoying for people. D.C.'s Mayor Mariel Bowser, flo- uh, she, she defied her own mask mandate. And, and, and this is what they do. They do this all the time because these rules are impossible for anybody to really follow consistently because they're way too strict and it's stupid. But Joe Biden was caught, as I mentioned, walking through the restaurant. He's going through the kitchen. He and Jill on date night. And they caught him maskless. This became a big thing on social media. Peter Ducey, Fox News, of course, asked Jen Psaki about it today. Cut 23. There is a mask requirement inside D.C. restaurants, yet President Biden and the First Lady were not wearing masks while walking around a D.C. restaurant on Saturday. Why? Well, I think what we were referring to is a photo of them walking out of a restaurant after they they had eaten masks in hand where they had not yet put them back on yet. So I would say, of course, uh, there are moments when we all don't put masks back on as quickly as we should. But I don't think we should lose miss, lose the force through the trees here. And that our objective here is to get more people vaccinated, make sure that, uh, that schools and companies around the country can put in place requirements to save more lives and keep people safer. 
uh, and, you know, not overly focus on moments in time that don't reflect overarching policy. Moments in time that don't reflect overarching policy. Well, Peter Ducey had a follow-up for her. It's a very important follow-up. Take a listen. It was not just exiting the restaurant, though. He was walking through the restaurant with no mask on. There is a carve-out for uh, people under two or people who are actively eating or drinking. So I'm just curious why the president was doing this. I think I just addressed it, Peter. Did she, though? Because I don't think she did. I think in a very snarky way, she did not address it, actually. She lied and said that it was just a matter of him putting his mask on quickly. No, the president and the first lady were walking through the kitchen without masks on. So they violated D.C.'s rules. Look, I don't care because I think the rules are stupid, but it's just more hypocrisy from these people. That's what it is. It's more hypocrisy. And what it comes down to is the fact that these rules are so strict that nobody can actually follow them every single day. And also, why should we at this point? If you're vaccinated, great. If you're not vaccinated, well, you know, that's that's a choice you have to make. So you roll the dice there. And as far as I could tell, everybody in the video that works there was wearing masks. Most restaurants make their employees wear masks anyway, which I think is stupid. One time I went to a restaurant in Philadelphia right after they got rid of the mask mandate before they put it back in. And it was wonderful to be at a restaurant and sit at a bar and not have someone wear a mask when they served me a drink. It was great. I, we, my wife and I were vaccinated. We're sitting at the bar and talking to the bartender without her wearing a mask. And nobody in the restaurant wore a mask because the restaurant said, you don't have to wear them anymore. And it, it just felt normal. It felt so free and normal. And then, of course, being that it's Philadelphia, they put the mask mandate back in place. But this is what they do. In fact, the mayor of Philadelphia, Jim Kennedy, during lockdown, he violated the restaurant, the indoor dining rule by having dinner in Maryland. And he, he argued, well, I was at a place where there aren't very high rates. So it, even though I'm punishing the restaurants by keeping them locked down, uh, it's all right for me to do it. Because, again, it's rules for thee, not for me, if you're a D. And this pattern continues. But good for Peter Ducey for calling Jen Psaki out on it. Shame on Jen Psaki for once again lying. But, hey, what are you going to do? I mean, it's just some people just don't put the mask on fast enough. What a what a crock. Hey, coming up, Dr. Nicole Sapphire will be my guest. A lot of questions surrounding the effectiveness of the vaccines in light of the fact that Colin Powell was vaccinated. A lot of uh, false information out there. We'll talk to her about that. Plus, where do things stand with booster shots? What's going to happen as we go forward? What is Dr. Fauci saying now about your freedom? Here on The Guy Benson Show with me, Rich Zioli. Don't miss it. Dr. Nicole Sapphire, straight ahead. Fox News Podcasts Network. Download and listen to The One with Craig Gutfeld, the co-host of The Five, like you've never heard him before. You know him, you love him, you want to be like him. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. Guys, off today, it's me, Rich Zioli from WPHD in Philadelphia, with you this afternoon. A pleasure to be with you. Thank you for 
hanging out this afternoon. There's a lot of questions this afternoon about COVID, uh, particularly after former Secretary of State Colin Powell passed away with COVID complications, even though he was vaccinated. So a lot of rumors out there. We have, of course, a wonderful doctor to turn to for all the truth. I want to welcome back to the program Dr. Nicole Sapphire, board-certified medical doctor, senior Fox News medical contributor, and, of course, best-selling author. Great book, Panic Attack, Playing Politics with Science in the Fight Against COVID-19. Hey, Dr. Sapphire, thanks so much for joining me this afternoon. Really appreciate it. Hey, Rich. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Now, first thing I want to ask you is Secretary Colin Powell passing away today with COVID complications, even though he was vaccinated. Obviously, it's certainly something that can happen to anybody. But I know that he also had some some underlying conditions, right? Oh, undoubtedly. First of all, let's 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 talk about the facts, because you see a lot of people everywhere who are, you know, making some inferences that maybe don't necessarily have any facts to back them up. First of all, we're talking about an 84-year-old man. We already know one of the biggest risk factors for a severe outcome of COVID-19 is age. Over 75% of all people who have died from COVID-19 have been over the age of 65. So let's keep that in mind. In addition to his age, being 84, he also has a remote history of prostate cancer, history of multiple myeloma, which is a type of cancer that affects the blood, and he also has been diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. All three of them may be, make him more vulnerable to COVID-19, specifically multiple myeloma. Now, we, we don't know where he was at in his treatments, whether he was in remission or not, but I can tell you there are about 1.3 million Americans who are all living with either a blood cancer or in remission from having been treated by one. And the data thus far to date shows us these patients do not mount nearly as good of a, a immunity response from the vaccines as the healthier counterparts. And then couple that with age. Those who are over the age of 60 don't, don't mount the same amount of immune response as younger people. So when you add those two factors together, the vaccine in him, yes, it, it may have given him some partial immunity, but the likelihood of him having a robust response to the vaccine is much lower than, say, the general population, which is why when it comes to the booster shots, we have said the vulnerable population, if anyone is going to benefit from a booster shot, it would be them. So do you think if Colin Powell had had a booster shot, I mean, I know that's a very hypothetical question, but would that have made a difference? Because I'm, I'm assuming that the booster shot is is certainly something recommended, as you mentioned. But with the other pre-existing and underlying conditions, would you think it would have made a difference in that case? Well, that's a good question. And unfortunately, anybody who says they can answer it, they're lying to you. Now, right. we know that people who get the booster shots have a bump in their antibodies because the antibodies have, can wane after the vaccines. Um, but you, you still have other parts of the immune system that stays, even if the antibodies have decreased. So they, while the booster may increase antibodies, is that any better because, than their existing natural immunity by preventing severe disease in the majority of people? I don't know. Did he not mount an immune response to the vaccine because of his multiple myeloma? If that's the case, then he may not amount to an immunity response to the booster. We don't know. Did he amount some um, immunity to the vaccine and therefore was partially vaccinated and the booster would have made him closer to fully vaccinated? It's possible. 
We don't know. These are a lot of guesses. What we do know is based on laboratory studies, as well as some data that has come out of Israel, people who have gotten the boosters have a lesser risk of hospitalization and death compared to the people who have not gotten the boosters when we're focusing on those high-risk populations, like those who are over 60. Um, what this translates to long-term, I don't know. We know that Colin Powell was scheduled to get his booster last week, but didn't because he fell ill. Had he gotten one in August when they became available, I don't know if it would make a difference. People may say it would have, but it, we don't know. But Dr. Nicole Sapphire, to uh, quote your book, Panic Attack, nobody should panic about this either because, again, he had a lot of health problems. Would you still recommend the booster shot for people that are his age? Would you recommend it for people who are younger than that? I mean, what are your thoughts now on when we should get it? And also, what about the idea of mixing and matching vaccines? You got the Pfizer vaccine, but you get a Moderna booster or vice versa. So all great questions, Rich. And so I can tell you when it comes to the boosters, I can say that I absolutely do support the vulnerable and high-risk populations getting the va- getting booster shots because I don't know if they were going to translate to real huge long-term clinical benefits, but I can tell you that this is a very vulnerable population, and why wouldn't we do anything we possibly can to give them even a, a, even a fraction of a chance at surviving this viral infection? So I'm all for that. When it comes to the general population, I am not... I'm not sold yet that everybody should be getting a booster shot. I think at this point it should absolutely be offered to those in high-risk populations and those who are at high risk of exposure and who want to get it. But when it comes to the general population, I'm not sure yet because the data still shows and it still suggests that while, yes, antibodies may wane and, yes, we're having um, you know a lot more breakthrough infections, which the overwhelming majority are mild, um, the the initial vaccines are still doing a great job at preventing severe outcomes. And so for me, it seems the COVID vaccine in the majority of people, it's turning into like the flu shot. The, you know, Americans get the flu shot every single year. They get that knowing that it's not 100% foolproof. And by the way, you still may get the flu. But what is proven is that the flu shot reduces severe outcomes, hospitalizations, and deaths when it comes to the flu. The COVID vaccine is probably going to be similar for the majority of people who get the COVID vaccine. You may get an annoying cold, but the chance of you having a severe outcome is going to be very rare. But again, just like with the flu, there are vulnerable populations that we have to do everything we can to protect them. So if it means giving them a booster, then I say go for it. Let me ask you this now. Dr. Anthony Fauci came out and said, look, if you're vaccinated, enjoy the holidays. Go ahead. He's now given the nation permission to trick or treat and enjoy Christmas. I don't know about you, Dr. Sapphire. I I wasn't waiting for Fauci's permission to enjoy the holidays again this year. I, I do. I do wish the mainstream media would do a little bit more of their job and focus on some some really good questions. Like when it comes to efficacy Um, of boosters in general population to the fact that we have the EUA being up for review for children 5 to 11. These are questions to talk about. Talk about long-term harms of the massive unemployment that's ensuing because of vaccine mandates. This is what the media should focus on. Dr. Fauci does not need to give the world permission to go (laughs) trick-or-treating. At this point, people know how to safely be around other people. We know that you have less transmission being outdoors and you should limit your interactions to people that you are comfortable with and still decrease the amount of 
congested indoor gatherings, you do. And everyone should do everything they possibly can to enjoy every day of their life, not just the holiday, because we never know which day is going to be our last. COVID-19 is not the only thing that kills people. I diagnose cancer every single day. Let me tell you, you need to do what you can to cherish every day of your life and not wait for some bobblehead on TV to tell you what you can and cannot do. Last question, if I could. I have a, and I agree with you, by the way, 100%. So well said. Really well said, Dr. Sapphire. I have a seven year old and a five year old. A lot of my friends have kids about the same age, and we're all wondering the same thing. Assuming that in a couple weeks they come out with the emergency use authorization for vaccines for kids five and above, what should we do? Now, as parents, and your parent as well, and I know you've got kids similar age as mine. What kind of factors do you think should go into the decision-making process? I I hope to God it's not mandated for my children, although I'm in New Jersey, so I'm worried about that fact. But what what kind of things should we as parents be thinking about before we make that decision? Well, Rich, I also, I have an eight-year-old and a seven-year-old, and I'm also in New Jersey. So if anyone's getting a mandate, it's going to be California and Jersey. Yeah. Um, You know, honestly, it's really hard to comment right now because the data hasn't been released yet. Here are the things that I'm looking for as a parent and as a physician. We know that severe outcomes in otherwise healthy children ages 5 to 11 is exceedingly rare. And I'm not saying uncommon. It is exceedingly rare. And not only are severe outcomes such as hospitalization and death rare, but long COVID is much less prevalent in this age group as the older age groups as well. So the question is, What is the impetus behind vaccinating children? Are we wanting to protect them from rare illness? And if that's the answer, then okay, then we need to show that the vaccines cause fewer side effects than would be expected if a child, a severe outcome, than if a child were to have COVID-19. And so that is obviously data that we're looking for from Pfizer once they release it to the public. We also talk about the multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children. That is the autoimmune condition that happens after a COVID infection. Well, that is an autoimmune response to the virus. We need to make sure that we are not causing an autoimmune response to the vaccine. We don't want to be causing the multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children following the vaccine either. So they needed to include enough patients to also capture any of those rare side effects if they were to see any of those autoimmune responses following vaccination. And then you go to, well, are you vaccinating the younger population to lessen overall spread and further protect the vulnerable? And if that's the case, okay, we know vaccinated individuals have a lesser chance of transmitting the virus, but the, tr- the chance is not zero. So they need to reevaluate that data to see what is the true benefit of vaccinating this age group versus is there a risk to it? And really, that's only going to come from the Pfizer data. But I can tell you, the Pfizer data, the last I saw, they did not enroll enough children to see the very rare side effects. And that's something that would come after mass vaccination campaigns, similar to what we saw with the myocarditis in the adolescents and young adults. While they had a couple of cases in their clinical studies, it wasn't until after millions of people got vaccinated that you started to see these more rare side effects. And that is certainly not what should happen when it comes to young children and COVID because of the low risk of severe outcome in them from this virus. Excellent. As always, incredible information. Dr. Nicole Sapphire, get her book, Panic Attack, Playing Politics with Science. 
in the fight against COVID-19. Whether it's my show in Philadelphia or when I'm here filling in for Guy Benson, it's such always a pleasure to talk to you, Dr. Sapphire. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. And we will be right back. You're listening to a new generation of talk. Generation of talk. Guy Benson. So, Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. China tested a nuclear-capable hypersonic missile. Not only did it capture, uh, ca- caught us by surprise, uh, catch us by surprise, it, it's also, uh, we welcome the competition. That's right. That's what Jen Psaki said today. We welcome the competition from China. Really? Really? The missile launched in August and circled the globe before speeding towards its target, which it missed by about two dozen miles, according to three individuals briefed on the intelligence. Now, two of those individuals said the test showed just how far China has progressed on hypersonic weaponry. Progressed. Further, uh, now this is this is a major deal here. This is something that should be very, very eye-opening to all of us. If it, if it wasn't enough, the whole COVID thing coming out of a lab and China covering it up and not giving access to people to actually do a proper investigation. And now they're talking about maybe that lab has even deadlier pathogens because COVID has about like a 1% kill rate, but the ones they're talking about now, about 30%, also in the same labs. But how about this? A hypersonic missile that can go around the earth. We, we probably should be discussing this in a little bit more detail. We have no idea how they did this. That, that's really what the intelligence community said. We don't know how they did this. We, we don't know how they pulled this off. How did they pull this off? A uh, expert on Chinese nuclear weapons and a professor at MIT named Taylor Fravel said it would be destabilizing if China fully developed and deployed such a weapon. You think? Hypersonic glide vehicles... Now, these things fly at lower trajectories and they can maneuver in flight, which makes them hard to track and destroy. I'm also wondering now about all those reports we had of unidentified flying objects. I'm wondering if any of those were actually the hypersonic missiles. I don't know. But it's now piqued my interest in that perspective, given that they can maneuver in flight, which is what those things were doing in the videos, a lot of them. It's not to say that there aren't also videos of of outer space things, but one of the things that Senator Marco Rubio was worried about, what if this is foreign technology? What if this is one of our enemies testing something that we just have no idea we've never seen it before? So what if it's this? What if this is exactly what we've been talking about? And it's actually not little green men from space. It's just China. U.S. military officials in recent months have warned about China's growing nuclear capabilities, particularly after the release of satellite imagery that showed it was building over 100 intercontinental missile silos. Yeah. Now, these weapons, these missiles could, in theory, fly via the South Pole instead of the more heavily monitored North Pole route. And obviously, the North Pole route is monitored because of Santa Claus and the elves and whatnot as we're getting closer to Christmas. Got this, you know, a lot of a lot of action over there. A lot of but the South Pole, nothing going on there. So, you know, you fly them that way, could be very problematic. Uh, 
Now, during a Senate Armed Services Committee hearing in March, Admiral Philip Davidson, who's the head of the Indo-Pacific Command, he warned, warned against an increasing imbalance in the region brought on by China's rapid military advance. And he said, every day, this balance is becoming more and more unfavorable for the United States and our allies. He said, we are accumulating risk that may embolden China to unilaterally change the status quo before our forces may be able to deliver an effective response. Now, think about this, too. China is increasing their defense budget by 6.8%. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. We know that China is beating us when it comes to cyber warfare. We just had a guy quit over this last week. We know that China is still working on a bioweapons program. If COVID-19 was not a bioweapon, and I'm not convinced it wasn't, but if this one wasn't, the next one certainly will be because China's learning and China doesn't have to worry about anybody going in there and actually looking at the labs. They're very good at just telling people go away and people go away. So getting in there and actually looking around is almost impossible to do. This is the new Cold War right now. This is the new Cold War. And we're losing. We're losing this Cold War without, without question, we are. And we're seeing more and more of the tension with China every day, whether it's with Taiwan or it's launching these missiles, testing these missiles, whether it is, in fact, denying the world access to the labs. All of it is just pointing to one thing. China is not our friend. China is absolutely in the midst of a Cold War with the United States of America. And we need to step up our game. We got a lot more to say, including whether or not DC Comics made the right move with Superman. Tell you all about that in the Guy Benson Show. Don't go away. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. So DC Comics has removed the American way from Superman's slogan. I mean, you know this. Truth, justice, the American way. It was always a quintessential thing for Superman to say. Not anymore. Why they do this, of course? Well, one word, China. That's why they did this. I mean, really, truly. These the movie companies now, and also the, the people behind the video games, they make their money really overseas. And so you can imagine, especially as we're in this new Cold War with China, China wouldn't like it very much if Superman uttered the phrase truth, justice, and the American way. So now it's truth, justice, and a better tomorrow. Oh, how nice. And I'm sure China truly believes that the People's Liberation Army can give everybody a better tomorrow. No doubt about it. But you know what? And here's the thing about Superman. And, and I, I loved the movies. I did. I mean, the very first Superman, the movie with Christopher Reeve, was amazing. He, it was great. Look, Gene Hackman was the best Lex Luthor on screen, no doubt about it. He was so funny in that role, took it seriously. It was the right balance between humor and also just respecting the character, respecting the, the source material, no doubt about it. And that scene where Superman says to Lois Lane, I fight for truth, justice, and the American way. It's an iconic scene. Music in the background, really nice. Then in 2005, they made this terrible movie called Superman Returns. Obviously, Christopher Reeve had a, a tragic accident. And then, I mean, they were trying to find somebody who could be just like him and be Superman. Not easy to do. 
he really defined that character from the first movie in the 1970s, really all the way up until um, the 1980s and the 90s. I mean, he was Superman. And they tried to find somebody who looked like him, but they couldn't find somebody who acted like him. And so the movie was a dud. It really was. And then even worse than that is Gene Hackman didn't want to be Lex Luthor again. And I don't think they would have used them anyway. So they went with Kevin Spacey. And Kevin Spacey was just over the top and angry the entire time. But that was the first time in the movie sphere, at least, that they dropped that phrase. They just didn't make a big deal out of it. So in the scene, 2006, Frank Langella's character, he's playing Perry White, the editor of the Daily Planet. And he's asking all these people around the room, who's he dating? What's he been up to? And he's he's making different assignments. And one of the things he says is, does he still stand for truth, justice, all that stuff? And I remember at the time thinking about that and going, ooh, why did they drop American Way? And I thought, okay, well, Bush is president and Hollywood hates George W. Bush and the world hates us and Iraq and everything else. So so they dropped it because of that. That that was a conclusion I came to at the time that Hollywood thought that we you remember how it was back then. You had all these country music people, the Dixie Chicks and everybody else singing these awful songs. Everybody hated us. The world. But I mean, this was a whole thing. Right. So this movie comes out in 2006 and it's like the perfect timing for this. But it was also overshadowed by the fact that it was just not a good movie. So even though that line is in there, does he still stand for truth, justice, all that stuff? It's overshadowed by the fact that the movie is terrible, really terrible. So nobody really thought about that. They were too busy talking about how the movie just stunk. Now, years later, they made they obviously took a different actor, different whole route with uh, Henry Cavill playing Superman and. I don't think they even went down that road of truth, justice in the American way, but I wasn't surprised that they wouldn't add it to the new DC Superman movies. I'm not surprised by that. But what's surprising about this is that they've openly taken the position to let everybody know that they're changing the slogan. So it's, it's one thing to kind of subtly change it and see if anybody notices. But this is now... This is Warner Brothers, DC Comics. This is really them coming out and making sure that everybody's aware of the fact that they've changed this. Now, this comes right after they announced that Superman's son is bisexual, which is just a you know cheap publicity stunt in the year 2021. Who, who cares? It's, it's so dumb. But they're, they're trying anything they can to get attention, clearly, get attention. But this whole thing about truth, justice, in the American way, it's very obvious that Hollywood and and comic books have been invaded by very liberal thinkers and writers. I have a real good friend who uh, has been like an advisor to me on superhero movies. So before I ever watch one, I will always ask him his opinion on everything. And he's a conservative. And he actually has written some brilliant stuff, brilliant comic books. He's he's contributed to some like major titles. I'm not going to say much. I don't want to get him in any more trouble than he's already in. But he made the mistake one day of posting something on Facebook back in 2016, and it wasn't even a pro-Trump thing, but it wasn't pro-Hillary. And for that sin, he was effectively canceled. I know. He was effectively canceled. Somebody reached out to him at one of the, the big comic book places, Marvel or DC, I don't even remember, and they said to him, why are you not taking more of a position in support of Secretary Clinton? 
And he said, well, I don't, I'm not trying to take an, I'm just trying to point something out. I'm not trying to endorse a candidate or be political. I'm just, they said, yeah, but the fact that you're not means that you're not, you're not with us. You're not at the cool kids table. And he said, well, I don't, well, don't want to be. I'm just, I'm just expressing a point on something, and it's, it's kind of critical of both candidates. And they said, well, you can't be critical of both candidates. You're not allowed to be critical of both candidates. You need to be critical of Trump and back Hillary, period. And it was really one of those moments of, you ever want to work in this town again, kid? And he really hasn't since. Not in the way that he was. And that's a real shame. So he, he's another person in a long list of this Hollywood blackballing of conservatives this is why so many conservatives that work in Hollywood or work in comic books or whatever. They just they try to just not say anything. You know, they just try to not. Now, if you're Chris Pratt, who's actually in the Avengers, he's in the Guardians of the Galaxy movies, plays Star Lord. If you're him, you can be as vocal as you want because you've made it. You know, you're good. You're you, you've passed the point of cancellation. So you can wear your shirt with the Gatson flag. You can wear an American shirt. You can you can do cool things like you can play in the new uh I mean, there's lots of different series that he's working on that I would argue they're very patriotic. Like Jack Carr, for example, my buddy Jack Carr, who's a Navy SEAL, has written several books. He's got a show coming out that Chris Pratt has produced and also is starring in. So, I mean, it's going to be a very pro-patriotic, pro-military kind of a show. But if you're not at that level yet, you got to, you know, you got to zip your mouth if you want to you want to work here. You want to work in this town again, kid. But there's something else, too. Beside the fact that liberals have invaded, and, I, and, I, and I've heard a lot of this today, that we just, they don't want to say truth, justice in the American way because they hate our country or they don't believe America. Well, that's true. But it's also about making money. The one thing these people do worship without question is money. And they can say they're woke and they can say they're liberal all they want. But if China doesn't show their movies on their screens, and if those video games are not for sale in stores in China because... Superman dares to utter the phrase truth, justice in the American way. Forget about it. They will lose a boatload of cash. Now, it probably wasn't like that in 1978 when the first Superman movie came out. And also you had Marlon Brando. So, I mean, you knew it was guaranteed to be a hit. He played Jarrell, So it was great. I mean, everything Brando does is fantastic. So now we're in 2021. No Brando. No Christopher Reeve. Gene Hackman's not coming back as Lex Luthor. And now they've gotten rid of that slogan. So you could understand why, if you look through the cynicism of it, again, very easy to think, ah, oh, a bunch of libs in comic book land and Hollywood land, and they just, they hate America. What's with them? And But it's actually the fact that they just kneel before China and do everything that China wants. Think about this. They had that movie that came out recently. It's called Fast and Furious 9. I didn't see it. I didn't see the other eight ones either, and I'm not going to waste my time. But John Cena, who's an actor... And I've played this before on my show in Philly. He went on this whole tangent in Mandarin Chinese apologizing to China for suggesting that Taiwan was, was its own country. Apologizing profusely in Chinese. It's hysterical to listen to. But you know the studio said to him, you better go. You, you got to apologize now because otherwise China will ban this movie. And if that happens, we're not making any money. So not only do we have that problem, think about how many news organizations are owned by corporations that also either own movie companies or TV companies or have giant giant stakes in those companies. And they want to make sure that, that those things are shown on screen. Whether it's a big screen or small screen, a lot of this really is video games. And we're talking billions and billions of dollars in video game sales. So even if it's not a big movie 
there's always going to be a, a video game component, even for a TV show. That's, you know, a Netflix or something like that. If they can find a way to turn around and, and market it, they will. So right away, they'll pretend like, well, we've evolved. America is not the only country in the world. And American principles and blah, 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 blah. Ah, come on. You don't want to get kicked out of China. You know it and I know it. Everybody else knows it too. Stop pretending like this isn't about pure capitalist greed. You know it is. You just don't want to say it. Just be honest about it at least. At least if they were honest, I could respect them. If they came out and said, look, Superman is not going to fly in China, literally. So we got to rework the uh, we got to rework the whole script here. And that's not the only thing, too. These movies now more and more are made to be easily translatable on the big screen for that purpose. How it plays in China on the screens, easy to translate so that it's easy to do the the subtitles and the English subtitles or the the English, uh, you know, when they, when they talk over the characters, the ad libbing, which is always terrible. So they do that, too. It's, it's also the reason why you see big, giant blockbusters in movie theaters nowadays. Because a lot of times people wonder that. But they, they go, how come it's, it's like every movie is either a giant action movie or a superhero movie on the big screen these days? Why, why, why do they keep going down that road? And then the more complex stuff winds up being on Netflix or winds up being on Amazon. And, and the answer is really to that point of these movies are made to be easily translatable to, to be able to be shown in the Asian markets. And if they're going to have the dubbing or they're going to have the, the subtitles, either way, it'll be, you know, not too, not too hard to do, not too hard to pull that off. Now, surprisingly, there is a, a Netflix, a show that, that has come out that has kind of taken the world by storm. And it's a show that I started to watch a little bit. And I could see why people get hooked on it. It's called Squid Game. And I'm going to talk about that when we get back. Because th- this movie, I mean, this show, what it costs to make versus what it's actually bringing in a return. And it's something, too, about Netflix. Because I got to give them major credit. They stood up for Dave Chappelle. Dave Chappelle, they tried to cancel him. And yet Netflix fired back. And I'll tell you all about that when we get back here on The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show. Some breaking news to share with you. Fox News is reporting that the State Department's Inspector General is launching a series of investigations into the botched withdrawal from Afghanistan by the Biden administration. Uh, Just broke a short time ago. It's going to focus on the State Department's special immigrant visa program. Now, if you remember, these are Afghans who are processed for refugee admission into the United States. And a lot of them are the people that fought side by side with us in the war, uh, were translators. So they're also looking into the U.S. resettlement of refugees and visa recipients, as well as the emergency evacuation of the U.S. Embassy in Kabul. So this is a big deal. Now, it was first uh, reported by Politico, confirmed by Fox News. Diana Shaw, the acting inspector general at the State Department, telling Congress that her office was launching several oversight projects related to the end of the U.S. military and diplomatic missions in Afghanistan. She said, quote, given the elevated interest in this work by Congress and the unique circumstances requiring coordination across the inspector general community, I wanted to notify our committees of jurisdiction of the important work. Committees of jurisdiction. Yeah, so this is big. This is really big. This just came out. And you have now uh, the inspectors general from the Department of Defense and the special inspector general for Afghanistan reconstruction. They're also 
going to launch probes into the withdrawal. Now, obviously, both sides of the aisle have been critical on on Biden for how this is how this has been handled. In fact, re retired Lieutenant General Keith Kellogg, a Fox News contributor, former acting national security advisor to President Trump, he said at the time that Biden owns the Afghanistan withdrawal disaster. And he's not the only one saying this. Even Robert Gates and Robert Gates is a guy he's an Obama guy. Even he was out there saying that this was a disaster. He was on 60 Minutes talking to Anderson Cooper about this. And I think given the fact that this investigation just broke, the news of this just broke a few minutes ago, it's worth playing this audio for you. Uh, let's start with cut number 20. But you think he made a mistake in Afghanistan in the way yes. he handled the withdrawal? Yes. Do you think he believes he made a mistake? I've worked for eight presidents, Anderson. I, I've never encountered a single one of them who ever, who ever said, well, I really blew that one. Really? Is that really true? <laughs> never. They just don't do that. You know, deep in their heart, they may know it, but they will really? never say it. Do you think it would be better if they did? I, yes. I think it would make them more credible. Well, you know, it's interesting because the disaster that was Afghanistan, that Biden said the buck stops with me, but at no point did he ever say they did anything wrong. He talked about this, and, and actually he, Robert Gates said Biden's gotten a lot wrong. Cut 19. You wrote Joe Biden was a man of integrity. Still, I think he's been wrong on nearly every major foreign policy and national security issue over the past four decades. I think he's gotten a lot wrong. You're talking all through the years as vice I, president. I, I, he opposed every one of Ronald Reagan's military programs to uh, contest the Soviet Union. He opposed the first Gulf War. That list goes on. Now, I will say that in the, in the Obama administration, he and I obviously had significant differences over Afghanistan. But he and I did agree in our opposition to the intervention in Libya and, frankly, on issues relating to Russia and China. The issue of timing has always been one of the things that we've talked about and also one of the things they're going to be looking at with the inspector general's now investigation into this botched withdrawal. Robert Gates says they had a lot of time to plan this. It didn't have to be this way. Cut 21. It was really tough for a few days there. I actually wasn't feeling very well. And I realized it was because of what was happening in Kabul. And I was just so low about uh, the way it had ended, if you will. And... And I guess the other feeling that I had was that it probably did not need to have turned out that way. Well, President Biden said any withdrawal is messy. Certainly the military considers the withdrawal the most dangerous uh, part of an operation. But they really had a lot of time to plan, beginning with the deal that President Trump cut uh, with the Taliban. Uh, so that was in February of 2020. Yeah. And they did have a lot of time to plan. It didn't have to be this way. Now, it's important to know that the State Department is trying to spin this by saying, oh, no, no, this is something we asked for. We, we asked the IG to look into this. Anybody believe that? I don't believe that for a second. They're trying to say, no, listen, we just thought it'd be really helpful if we had the inspector general take a look. <laughs> sure. Right. Uh, this is a big deal. And hopefully the truth will come out. I'm still wondering how many Americans are there. We still can't get an accurate count of how many Americans are still on the ground in Afghanistan as we speak. We, we've heard about school children still being there. We, we've heard about people who work in the various support services who are still there. I'd like to know. They're not telling us. 
They're still not telling us. And all of a sudden now the story has gone from the front pages and nobody even brings it up anymore. Now, luckily it will. But the one thing I can tell you is this is not something they wanted to come out because now it's going to put Afghanistan right back in the center of the spotlight where it belongs. Hey, listen, it's been great hanging out with you this afternoon, filling in for Guy Benson. You can catch me in the mornings on WPHD 1210 AM in Philadelphia. You can listen live on the Odyssey app. And I'll be back with you later in the week. I'm excited for that. So thank you for hanging out. Thanks to all our great guests. It's me, Rich Zioli, signing off for Guy Benson. Thank you for listening. To be continued, I guess I'll see you Wednesday. Always an honor. Thank you. Listen to be part of the conversation with me, Brian Kilmeade. I'll talk about the biggest stories of the day and get your take along with some of the biggest newsmakers around. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the podcast at BrianKilmeadeShow.com. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table the Duffy's at FoxNewsPodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.